Are there nerds here tonight? Nerds! You are a part of the lucky 10,000. With your hosts, Evan. We will shed the light on your asshole. And Carissa. I don't know that I've ever been hipstery enough to love something most people hated. Being a nerd, it's not about what you love. It's about how you love it. Hey guys. Hey everybody. This is Evan. And I'm Carissa. And we are the Lucky 10,000, the podcast that gets you luckier than an actor fucking up on stage and the audience thinking it was brilliant. <laughs> mm-hmm. Or just not noticing. Either one of those things is preferable. But of course, we want to start by thanking Stitcher and Podbean for having us and hosting us. Also, the Tangent Bound Network for adding us to their awesome list of shows. If you want to check out my Audible books, I have a few on Audible. Just search Evan Harris. And if you do listen to us, you can also listen to us through the Bearded Pods Network featuring not only us, but Teddy and the Baseman and the Bearded Ones Comedy Podcast also featuring myself. And if you do that, like always, please check out some of the other podcasts on the Tangent Bound network just to support the amateur podcasting community as a whole absolutely so before we get into the main subject of today's episode we both have little uh sidebars we want to talk about i'll let carissa go first out of gentlemanly politeness oh i had uh something super exciting happen to me last week during dirt mall which is like an exhibition pseudo tournament. Yeah, I was going to say, you better explain that one. Yeah, it's an exhibition pseudo tournament that has happened three times. This was the third one where 16 professional casters or streamers or content creators for Dota 2 are put into this tournament. But instead of them playing each other, what they do is they pick supposedly at random five people from their Twitch stream or their followers in game to play for them like champions for their cause. Nice. They went through this whole tournament. It lasted about a week. And their teams were totally random. So they were never the same team for two games in a row. And sometimes it was people who had never played a game of Dota with other people before. Sometimes it was semi-professional. And because it's called Dirt Mall, Mm -hmm. cheating was allowed. So some of the casters got actual professional players to play for them. But one of my favorite casters, whose name is Mott, you can follow him at Mott Dota on Twitter, he randomly selected me for his first game. What? What? And it was it was totally awesome. And I was absolutely giddy. And so I joined up in the game and the other four people that he randomly chose from his Twitch chat were super nice. We were all at about the same skill level. And the people who were randomly chosen by our opponent were also all at about the same skill level. So it ended up being a really good game on top of a semi-amateur pro game. <laughs> right. And, you know, 1,200 people got to see me play Dota, and our team won. And I have to say that some of that was because I played my position very well and enabled our team to advance and get fat and awesome. And then we took home fame and glory for our patron. Excellent. And I have I was kind of on a high about it for like four days. Yeah, today is actually the first day you weren't yeah. on a high about it. <laughs> Although now I've talked about it again and I'm all giddy again. Mm -hmm. It's like just ejecting that fame heroin right back into your arm. That's right. But it was good. It was a lot of fun and I had a great time and I think everybody else did. And I made a couple new online friends that I can play Dota with. Huzzah! Yay! Friendship is good and a good like sort of counter, almost an epilogue to last week's podcast. That's true. And things ended up okay. Okay. Well, I have something I wanted to comment on as well. Hit it. And this is going to sound like a criticism. It's not. But it is what I would like to think is sort of a leveling off of fandom. Because the new Captain America Civil War trailer came out. Featuring the appearance of Spider-Man. Which everyone has been talking about. We knew that Spider-Man would be in Civil War. I was not expecting to see him before the movie actually opened. Mm -hmm. And to be totally honest, I was kind of hoping they wouldn't show him before the movie opened. Yeah, but they can't do that anymore. No. I mean, it's like, who isn't going to see this movie regardless of whether or not Spider-Man's in it? So, you know, leave that completely secret. I've really liked the Captain America Civil War trailers. They haven't revealed a ton, but they've revealed just enough to kind of make you go, ooh. But I do have 
something I want to say. I've watched the trailer. I've watched a lot of people's online reactions to the trailer. Civil War, I think, is going to be a very good movie. There's no reason for me to think it's not, and the trailers just really solidify my belief that it's going to be very good. Okay. However, I think sometimes, and I think we all know this about human nature, love can blind you. I am in a very small minority of people who wasn't that thrilled with what I saw of Spider-Man in the trailer. He looks much more CGI than anyone else in the movie, I think. I didn't necessarily like the way he sounded because he does say something. And that's not me like shitting on anything. I'm still going to go see the movie. I'm going to love the movie. But what I do think I've seen a lot of is people just going like, oh my god, it's Spider-Man. This is so awesome. Whereas I think it's only because they love, they already are this excited about the movie. I think it's clouding their judgment a little bit because you go back and look at something like the Superman versus Batman trailer, which everyone's kind of skeptical about. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is a very quick shot in the second or third trailer, I think, of what looks to be Doomsday. And everyone was just like, oh, that looks so bad. Oh, blah, 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 blah. Oh, blah, blah, blah. It looks computer generated. Uh, I was like, doesn't look any more or less computer generated than Spider-Man does. And I just wanted to be the voice of dissent and comment on that. Again, it's not going to prevent my enjoyment. I'm still much more excited about Captain America Civil War than I am about Batman v Superman, although I'm going to go see Batman v Superman. And I, you know, am definitely firmly in the camp that Ben Affleck is not going to suck as much as everyone thinks he will. But do people still think that there are people out there that again, this is a judgment thing. This is like, I think the dark side of fandom and the dark side of obsession is that it's like somebody voting for Trump at this point. It doesn't matter what you show them, their opinion will not waver. So it's like, as soon as he was announced that he was going to be Batman, I was like, I don't have an issue with that because he has made good movies. He's been good in movies. And I know from being a fan of Kevin Smith that he's a hardcore Batman fan and has been for a long time. And then the trailers come out and we're all like, he looks pretty good. He sounds pretty good. But there are still people that it doesn't matter what you show them. It's Ben Affleck. Fuck him. I just, I don't get that. Like, at all. I think he looked fine. And I imagine he will do a probably great job. Yep. With that role. He looked great. Yeah. That's kind of what I'm fighting against in this little segment is just, you know, be honest. Be honest with the stuff that you love and even the stuff that you don't. And I think... uh there are pockets of people that don't have that capability. And I'm like, I'm, I'm super excited that Spider-Man's in Civil War, but I wasn't thrilled seeing him as much as I wanted to be because, you know, he looks a little more CGI than all the other characters. They do the eye squint thing, which we have talked about. Right. And I'm not 100% sure it works for him in movies. Like after you'd explained it to me for Deadpool, that it made perfect sense. And I really actually quite enjoyed that. Right. But I think... You're right. For Spider-Man, I'm not sure that that would work as well. Although it's one of those things. We've accepted it in the comics for generations, for decades. Yeah, but we've actually had theatrical Spider-Mans at this point that didn't do that. Right, because they were going on, you know, the laws of physics and how, like, there's nothing right, in his mask, mask that could actually do exactly. that. Unless you took, like, a Rorschach tacked with his with his mask, which I guess you could do, but... Yeah, but there's nothing canonical to explain why that would be a thing. No, no, not at all. I don't know. I think that we as an audience are totally used to seeing Spider-Man with an unmoving expression on his mask, and that's fine with us. Yeah, I mean, part of the problem with the Spider-Man movies, as I said before, was that they would they really wouldn't leave him in the mask for very long. <laughs> because they're just like, well, we gotta see his face. And I'm like, no, we really don't. Like, I like Spider-Man in the costume. That's why I like Spider-Man. Yeah. Or one of the reasons. But, you know, it is what it is. I just want it to be a dissenting voice and prepare for all the hate mail we're going to get for that. But uh, I'm not saying it looked bad. It's just one of those things that I'm like, is it as good as everyone's saying it is? Probably not. But people are so predisposed right now to love Marvel because they have done such an exceptional job with their movies that I think maybe a little bit of fan blindness there. We'll see. Uh, it's not going to ruin the movie for me. I still think it's going to be... If you were to ask me which movie I think is going to be better between Batman v Superman and Civil War, uh, Civil War, without a doubt. Well, yes, because Civil War doesn't have Superman in it. <laughs> well, I, I'm not a Superman hater, but every trailer I've seen for, for Civil War, it just it looks amazing. Whereas, you know, I think the trailers for Batman v Superman have been pretty at the opposite ends of the spectrum. And Well, here's my thing really quick about that is that I actually I watched the first trailer for Civil War and I won't watch anymore. I see. Sorry, I just ruined something for you then. No, you didn't, because I'm on the internet. So I've seen the stills that Spider-Man... I've seen Spider-Man. It wasn't a shock or whatever. But 
nowadays you can't have a trailer that doesn't give away your movie. Right. And I'd like at least some part of it to not be expected. Right. So I just I watched the first one so that I kind of see what I'm getting into and then I just stopped watching. So but I didn't do that for Batman v Spider-Man because I don't really care that much. So I've seen all the trailers for Batman v Spider-Man. And A, I think Ben Affleck looks great. Yeah, I think I do he'll too. do a fine job. Jeremy Irons is amazing. Yep. And he will, of course, do a fine job. I mean, Cable's apparently done well with Spider or with Superman, but Superman's a dumbass character. <laughs> but it seems to me like because you can't have trailers that don't give away your whole movie, there is a lot going on in all the oh, trailers yeah. for Batman v Superman. And I'm not sure how they're going to make a cohesive movie out of all of that shit. Well, that is that is the worry. And that is the thing that studios seem to have not still not learned in superhero movies. And, you know, maybe we're being hypocritical because we're like, yeah, but Civil War is going to be awesome. And it's got like every superhero ever in it. Right. But, but that's like all in the service of one plot that really, truly focuses on really two characters. Yeah. With Batman v Superman, it just seems like that there's no for one thing. It makes sense that all the heroes are in Civil War, whereas every time a new announcement came out that was like, Wonder Woman's going to be in Batman v Superman, Aquaman's going to be in Cyborg, you're just like, okay, stop. Like, you're rushing to do your Justice League thing because you realized you fucked up by not starting it earlier. Yeah, but the reason that Marvel was successful is that they did it slowly. Yes, because Marvel has had all these solo movies. That's another reason that a lot of the heroes being in Civil War isn't that bad is because right. we already have gotten their established canons and backstories and mythologies. Right. So it's like now we get to watch them play. And with Batman v Superman. And then there's like the whole thing about like Luther's in it, but he's not the main villain, but he kind of is. But it's really supposed to be about Batman and Superman. Fight. And yes, it is. It is the whole like, is it going to be another Spider-Man 3? <laughs> right. Or Batman Forever or Batman and Robin or, you know, any other superhero sequel where the studio doesn't go, you know, one villain works just fine. Because yeah. comics have been doing it for decades. No, they're all like, well, let's throw like 50 in there. And not only that, but also introduce new heroes when the name of the movie, because that's the other thing is the name of Civil War is Civil War, which means a war featuring a lot of different people. Right. The name of Batman v Superman is Batman v Superman, which is one guy and one other guy. Yeah. It's not Batman v Superman, colon, and a bunch of other people fighting with them. Yes. Who will eventually form the Justice League. Yes. Although they do say Dawn of Justice, so I don't know. But yeah, that that is a legitimate concern of mine. And as always with DC, you know, I just want to grab one of those execs over there and go, you know, everything doesn't have to be dark and brooding. Yeah. But that is a complete side note. That was just something that I had to get off my chest. What we're really talking about today is really the evolution of this podcast, if you want to look at it. Because sure. it's how we met. And it is theater. Theatral. Did you just say Theatron? Theatra. Theatra, okay. No, That's not different. Theatron. Theatron, he's one of the other villains in Batman v Superman. Not the robot created by, <laughs> by the Actors Guild to be the perfect thespian, and he gets out of control, and then you have to send in, oh, I don't know, Ian McKellen to stop him. <laughs> Theater, which we met doing a play. Yes. And became fast friends and theater's been a big part of both of our lives. I'm still active in it. You haven't done a play in how long? Oh, so so long. <laughs> I think it's been 14 years. Wow. Okay. But it is still something that that excites us that I know I'm still active in it and get just a ton of fulfillment from doing it. And I just thought it would be fun to talk about some of our personal experiences in theater, plays that we love, plays that we might think are a little overrated. You know, just just kind of encompass, not like all of theater, because I'm not enough of a scholar to do that. But I have a lot of personal experience seeing plays, doing plays. I have some great, you know, stories of things going wrong or plays yeah. that, that changed my life or whatever. So, you know, there's uh, I think there's a lot of good dialogue to be mined. So I don't think I've ever asked you this question because you had done theater before we met. What was oh, yes. your first play? My first play was Up the Down Staircase. Oh, okay. Which was a 1970s, late 60s, early 70s, I think. Sure. Uh, kind of Dangerous Minds sort of play. Right. This teacher goes into this failing school with a bunch of delinquents and has to make them be better people. Right. And That's basically it. it. Yeah. And I got to play the class slut 
Nice. I, I was guess. in high school. I'm high assuming school. it was yeah. high school, yeah. Did they have to cut any of it or change any of it? No, not at all. No. It was very greasy in its tone. I mean, it wasn't a musical or whatever, but even the hooligans were like the, you know, leather jacket wearing people that would survive in the inner city for five seconds in the play or badasses. Right. It was a simpler time. (laughs) Yeah, it was. Well, I mean, it's like the guys in West Side Story. It's like it's awesome to think of these two gangs dancing at each other. Exactly. (laughs) Put them in the ghetto and they're done in five. Right. So what prompted you to even audition? I had been in journalism and speech and debate. And my speech and debate coach was also our drama teacher and director. And he encouraged me, based on my performances during speech and debate, to try out for a play. Well, and that is a, that is a funny thing. You know, I was just talking to someone uh, recently. Uh, in fact, I don't know if you listened to my interview with my friend Leah Thomas, who mm-hmm. has said something. You go back and listen to the episode. I'm not just trying to advertise for the Reader Ones podcast, but it's a great episode about a great subject. But um, we started talking about how it's funny to watch the Oscars or the award, other award shows where phenomenal actors can't talk in front of a group of people to yes. save their lives. Robert De Niro doing any sort of patter or you know, trying to read a cue card uh, before he announces the winner for some award is yeah. despicably bad. However, he's still one of the greatest actors that ever lived. So it's always been funny to me to see that difference. And I know people who despise public speaking who are great actors. Sure, because that's not them speaking. Right. Yeah. But it's still like it really kind of makes me chuckle to think that a big part of it is simply the fear of being in front of a group of people. But I'm like, what you are, you're doing something much riskier in a play. By portraying a character than just standing in front of people and reading something prepared. Yeah. But I don't know. That's really interesting. Yeah, I kind of got into it kind of the same way. Um, I did take a theater slash speech course in high school just because I thought it would be an easy grade, which it was. And, you know, we started doing like scene work. And, you know, I'll be honest, it wasn't a great class. Um, the teacher that taught theater in my high school really didn't want to teach theater. She was a speech teacher who... Because it was a high school in Greer, South Carolina, they're like, well, you got to teach theater, too. We got to have at least a semester of it, so do it. Okay. Because we were such a football school, it wasn't even funny. Well, yeah. But I really remember like doing these scenes and also a lot of times doing scenes with partners who didn't bother to prepare and didn't give two shits and just trying to struggle through that. But it was, it was something that kind of... St- struck me and stuck with me and i just i didn't even know there was a theater community in greenville really i just thought oh this was fun i enjoyed this well i'll probably never do it again and then the year after i graduated a friend of mine was auditioning for a play at the warehouse theater and asked me to come along and i got in as an on basically an ensemble member and an understudy okay and i pretty much had the bug at that point i mean that was what was the play it was the foreigner Oh, of course it was. <laughs> of course it was. It was the first play I've ever done. If you don't know the play, it is a very good play. It's a very good comedy. It's a very well-written comedy. Um, in fact, I've taught some classes in the past year, and I use the opening scene of that show to teach those classes because I think it's a great example of two completely different characters in a scene together and, and how one of them is, is bigger than life and how, also how you open a play and how you communicate without saying much because the other character is very nervous and timid. And It's a great, I think, instructional scene. And I was a member of the clan in the actual production. Hey, I've been that guy. <laughs> yeah, I know. And this play, you know, I, if you don't know the play, this isn't like a, it's not a play that supports the clan, just so you know. It does make them out to be the idiotic villains that they are. You know, that was my first theater experience is wearing clan robes. Okay. But the understudying was fantastic. I really got to learn a lot. I got excited. I remember my first case of real jitters was when because uh, if you don't know obviously an understudy is someone who has to study the role of the lead actor in case something happens the lead actor and the understudy has to step in that understudy is also responsible for covering for that actor if they have to miss any rehearsals as well right and i didn't really know anything about anything i just thought i'm just here in case the actor gets sick but what i didn't know was that the actor i was understudying for had already requested some time off and they had approved it and so i'm just hanging out at rehearsal one day and the producer of the show comes up to me and goes oh two days from now uh the guy playing your part he's not going to be here so we'll need you to step in for him for the whole show because we were running the whole show at this point and i hadn't i wasn't even close to being off book and we were supposed (laughs) to be off book so the next two days i scrambled to learn the entire part and i uh 
recorded myself on blank tape. That shows you when this was. This was right. 1995. So I would play the tape in my car. I would listen to it on my Walkman. And when the night came to do it, I got all the way through the show without making any serious mistakes. And nice. I got applause from everyone else at the end of it. And that was just kind of like, I even made the guy playing the lead break character and laugh at something I did, which for this guy was extremely unusual. Okay. So that was just an amazing feeling. And that's when I kind of knew, yes, this is, I, I want to do this. I want to pursue this further. And not that long after, I met you. That's true. Doing community theater at Greenville Technical College. Greenville Technical College. We were was trying to start. Uh, it's not a college around here that's known for theater, <laughs> but they no. were trying. <laughs> but they were trying to start a program, and their first uh, effort for this uh, that involved us anyway was a play called Measure for Measure, which is Shakespeare, and also uh, the biggest flub I've ever had in a play. Uh, also, the biggest flub I've ever had that was caught on film. <gasps> you have a tape of it? Oh yeah. Oh. You gotta give me a copy of that. The one night I I don't know where it is right now, but it was the one night we recorded. That's hilarious. I don't even remember what you did. Well, and that's we can get into like our fuck ups later because every actor has them. Whenever we interview an actor for the bearded ones or anything, there's always that you know, or a comedian. We always have to ask the, "What's your worst gig story?" or did you ever fuck up on stage? And everyone has one. Everyone has that story. Oh, yeah. But so I've been very, very lucky. And Greenville is a great theater town in that every theater around here has cast me. And I've worked, gotten to work with all of them. And it's been a phenomenal learning experience because all the theaters around here are run by professionals, too. It's not waiting for Guffman, you know. Right. <laughs> they do quality work. So that's an amazing thing to be a part of. So, yeah, before we get into, like, the more personal anecdotes and stuff, let me ask you, plays that you've seen, plays that you've been involved in, you know, what are the ones that you've loved that have really struck a chord with you, maybe even changed your life, and how? Into the Woods probably would be at the top of the list. It has to be one of the best written musicals of all time. It was my senior play for high school. What about it, though? What is it about that play that you think makes it one of the best is it because because a musical is a very fragile thing i think because you the songs have to be great but the characters also have to be great the story has to be involving it's it's not that easy to make a really great musical well no into the woods is a i mean it's sondheim right one and even non-musical theater people at least recognize the name of stephen sondheim yes and for good reason he writes quality musicals yes he does and this, it was one of his, and in my opinion, his best. And it is basically just a retelling of... Several fairy tales. Right. But in a much darker, more adult way. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's much more Brothers Grimm than it is Disney. Yes. Kind of the spirit of the actual original fairy tales themselves, because yes. people forget how dark they actually are. Very much so. Like, the role that I had when I played it in high school was the Cinderella stepmother. Right. And... They actually have in Into the Woods the part where she cuts off parts of her daughter's feet to get them to fit into the slipper. Right. Like, that's in the musical. Right. And people die and are crushed by falling trees and giants. And, I mean, it's really very good. And it's human. It's much more human than the original fairy tales are. Right. By necessity, because they're, you know, short morality tales. But it was such a, you know, because senior year is already kind of an impactful time because you're moving on. Right. It's the last hurrah of this time of your life that has obviously taken up a huge chunk of your young adulthood or what will become adulthood. And because it is such an ensemble play, Mm -hmm. there are definitely mainer characters. Yes. But it is so interwoven that no one character is irrelevant. Right. And so because it is such an ensemble, not just a play, but in the music itself, it all interweaves all the time. And that creates in a cast for Into the Woods a very huge sense of tight-knit unity. It has to, or the play just won't work. And when you're in high school, that sort of unity is very hard to come by. Yes. Especially if you're a drama geek. Well, but I find that a lot of the theater clubs anyway, a lot of the drama clubs do sort of like, because they are made up of a lot of the outcasts of that particular school and they find a bond within themselves. The problem, though, is theater people are melodramatic anyway. Yes. And if when you throw in the added bonus of high school and hormones and, you know, still trying to find yourself 
it can either be this like super tight group of people or this just dysfunctional yes you know backstabbing cat fighting you know just awful thing usually within the same day sometimes within the same hour yes often in fact <laughs> and we had a lot of that there was a lot of go figure drama around the rehearsals for into the woods when we were in high school big shock <laughs> but at the end of it, it really was a very unifying, very gratifying, very fulfilling experience that taught us all a lot about how to get along with other people. Yes. Even people you really, really wouldn't get along with if you didn't have to. I think that also speaks to the craft itself in that, yes, theater is full of melodramatic people. But even in high school, the one thing you don't do is fuck up the show for your personal drama. That's correct. Once you get on stage, all that shit's gone. Yes. And it did teach us that. Yeah, and it should because, you know, in all the shows that I've done, it's been extremely rare that I ever saw anything affect a performance. You know, people could say, oh, I didn't do as well tonight as I did last night. But to really, truly change a performance or someone, you know, doesn't do something or does something they didn't do before because they're kind of screwing the show because of their personal shit. Right. That almost never happens. Yeah, very rarely because in the end... If you do it once, if you're that sort of diva that will do that once, it will ruin the show and you will never do it again. Never. Because it always comes back to you and it always makes you look bad. Right. I've seen people, like I've heard stories of people really being melodramatic backstage to the point where you've thought, oh my God, they're not going to be able to go on. And then magically, two minutes before they go on stage, everything's fine. And, yeah. you know, sometimes it was legit and sometimes it was someone going, I just need the attention desperately for everyone to think that I'm not going to be able to do this show, which that's bad enough. Because then you are making the backstage about you as well, which throws everyone else off and makes it harder for them to come together to do the show. But it almost always comes together. Yeah, because honestly, if you are that diva, you have made the mistake once of actually making it about you on stage. Right. And it has ruined everything and you don't do it again. But also, if you are a diva, the one thing you're not going to do is fuck up your chance exactly. to get adoration from that audience. And you know that in order to do that, the whole show has to be good. It can't just be you. Unfortunately, there are a lot of people that don't know that. <laughs> one thing I have noticed, and this yeah. is something that is a pet peeve of mine in theater in general, is that I know a lot of people who do want to be the best person there, who do want to be the uh, quote-unquote talent at a particular theater or whatever. And I've known people who ended up getting some really good parts at theaters that they worked with and then went to another theater to audition and didn't necessarily get a good part because the people that theater didn't know them yet. And instead of just saying, well, this theater's full of talented people that I can learn from, I will suck it up and be the ensemble for a little while or a smaller part here and there in this show until they're willing to give me a bigger chance. No, I want to go back to the shitty theater over here that doesn't really do good plays, but I still get to be the big parts that everyone says was the best part about the show. Yeah. And a lot of times, if someone says you were the best thing about a show, that's that's not necessarily a compliment. That's true. That is very true. I mean, I absolutely loved it when I'd get reviews that were, you know, Carissa did this part and she played this part amazingly and she brought life to the character or whatever. Of course. That of course. thrills me. But then again, I was a Klansman in The Foreigner. Right. <laughs> like, that was my whole role. The whole time I was on stage. I had a clan's hood on. Right. Like, no one knew it was me, and I didn't right. say anything. I just stood there looking menacing because I was in a Klansman costume. Right. And I'm fine with that. Like, that was yeah. cool. What I wanted to do most was the character stuff. Right. But my look is relatively, I don't know, leading lady-ish. I'm going to I'm going to put all you fanboys, the podcast fans to rest because Carissa has refused to put pictures of herself online. She is very cute. So continue your fantasies. But you're also very girl next door in a way. Exactly. I mean, that is I fit the leading lady look for a lot of plays. Right. Because I have a generally, you know, standard attractive metric that fits that. Right. But that's not really what I ever want to do. And I'm not funny enough to actually be a character actor. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say that. So I end up kind of not really being cut out for the diva role and also not being good enough to play the character role. So I'm always happy with kind of whatever I got. Right. I think that speaks to a lot of things, though. It's like I find the older because we both had leading parts in shows. Sure. And the older I've gotten, the more... 
I'm kind of like, yeah, but the leads tend to be kind of sometimes the most boring people in a play. Exactly. It's like you want the character roles. You want the character roles where you might not have to work quite as hard, but you get something rich and interesting. If it's a comedy, you get something funny. I always say one of the best parts you can have, especially if you get older, is the old guy and the funny thing happened on the way to the forum who runs around the hills. Now, if you don't know that show, there's a great moment where Pseudalus, the lead, which is a great part, by the way. I would love to play Pseudalus someday. But he convinces this old man because of his scheming that he has to run around these giant hills seven times. So the old man basically has a very short scene where Pseudalus convinces him to do this, and then he runs off to start running around the hills. The show is constructed in a way that then the plot continues and you completely forget that this old guy is doing this until right in the middle of the action, everything stops so he can run across the stage and go first time around and that's all he has to do. (laughs) And then, you know, the play, the plot continues for another 30, 45 minutes until second time around and it's phenomenal because like all you have to do is walk across the stage, say a line and the scene is yours. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. So yeah, character parts are always fun. I am getting, because I'm a little bit older now, and I am, uh, you know, the ravages of time. You know, I've lost some hair. I've put on a pound or two. I'm not what I would consider fat, but I definitely have more girth on myself than I would like. I've started to be cast in more character-y stuff. And That's awesome. it is a lot of fun. It is a ton of fun. Well, I love that. And Patton Oswalt does a thing where he's at a party for a show. Oh, yeah. I love that routine. And Brian Dennehy comes up to him and goes, character actors, who cares if we're fat? Right. Because they're both like chowing down on this buffet that all the perfectly coiffed and, you know, thin Hollywood actors are avoiding, even though they all desperately want to eat this delicious food. <laughs> and Patton Oswalt is just chowing down. And then Brian Dennehy comes over. And Brian Dennehy is an amazing actor. Oh, yeah. But he doesn't get leading man unless it's Willie Loman, which I had the opportunity to see in New York, which we'll get to in a second. But yeah, so those are the parts that tend to be the richest because, you know, if you're a lead, your job is to kind of be a conduit for the audience and also to be a lot of times just the best looking person on that stage. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, obviously there are exceptions like, you know, Othello, fantastic leading part, you know, Hamlet, wonderful leading part. But you also have a lot of rich characters even around Hamlet. I mean, uh, the play a play is never great if there's only one interesting character. Oh, absolutely. I mean, Shakespeare is actually a pretty good a pretty good place to go for leading roles that aren't boring. Not always, but what was it Twelfth Night? Yes, I got to play Viola in Twelfth Night. Yes, great part. And she's the lead, well, largely the lead for that show. And her character is actually very interesting. She cross dresses through most of it. She's pretending yes. to be another person through the whole thing, and it's a Shakespeare comedy. So of course, there's like love triangle and confusion mm. and stuff. And so that's interesting all by itself which adds to the character as opposed to just being like oh you're the diva right you have no development you're not really going to change at all it's very static you just have to look pretty and say your lines so that the other characters can do stuff around you right yeah and and any any actor even if you get a part that you don't find that interesting initially you find what's interesting about it you make it interesting for yourself but we've both been in plays where you're just like i don't I don't, I can't find it. I, I'm just going to do the best I can. Picnic. Picnic. Yeah, and maybe that's something good we could get into in a second is sort of the plays that we weren't kind of like that thrilled with. And I don't know. But I mean, there's definitely been some plays for me that changed my life, or at least that I really gravitated towards. I did get the chance to go to New York in the summer of 99 to take a class at the Neighborhood Playhouse, which focused on the Meisner technique. And being up there, I got to see The Iceman Cometh with Kevin Spacey and And you told him dude you were awesome yes and I told him dude you were awesome and he replied glad you approve and then got into his SUV and drove away (laughs) with smoke in the air and I saw Death of a Salesman with Brian Denny. He both were amazing shows. Later on, I went back to New York and saw Rent, and we can get into that in a second. But um, yeah, those plays were definitely, I think, game in life changers for me. That class was a game changer for me. One of the best compliments I've ever gotten came from that class because the teacher, the acting teacher, because we did dance, we did speech, and then we did three hours of acting. He was kind of tough. He was tough on us a little bit. He was a cool guy. But like with any sort of program that is geared toward professional acting, you know, you, you got to kind of be a little bit hard on people sometimes. Really, like, you know, there's no coddling. Right. It is like you are not doing this justice. And here's what, you know, and toward the end of the six weeks, I'd been working on the scene. And he said, 
Uh, it was my last time doing the scene before the class was over. And he had not really complimented me on anything up to this point. Okay. You know, if something went well, he would acknowledge that it went well. But so I was done. And, you know, whenever a scene or an exercise was over, he would talk to us about just how the scene went and what we could improve and what we did well and all this other stuff. So I'm just standing there in front of the class, which I uh, will freely admit at that point, I really didn't know myself and tried way too hard. So I don't think I was a very popular person in that class. Okay. I, I honestly wasn't. So he'd been giving me a hard time through the whole thing. And then he looks at me, he goes, I've been giving you a lot of shit this past six weeks, uh, but I think you really want to do this. And I think you're pretty good at it. It was almost like begrudging. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But still, this guy, like he, his responsibility was not to hold my hand. His responsibility was not to make me feel good about myself. No. And he was this like New York guy who knew acting and was just like, you know, just for him to say, I think you're good. I was just like, that may be one of the best things I've ever heard. So that obviously, that whole experience changed my life. One of my biggest regrets is that I didn't go back to take the two-year program. But that was when I sort of realized that going to New York or going to California, I wouldn't survive. Yeah. Both of those places would eat me alive. I I agree with that. So I decided I made a conscious decision to come back down here and focus on what I could do in this area. And that has actually turned out to be pretty fruitful um, because I'm I am consistently working, which is awesome. Um, and also, I think proof that I'm never going to be, you know, George Clooney famous and who fucking wants to be. But I'm never going to be a millionaire from it. But it is possible to make an income off of it and survive. Yeah, absolutely. There may be other things you have to do to make ends meet sometimes if the work is thin. But but it is possible to do what you love. And to make at least a little bit of money off of it. And you don't have to be in New York or California to do that. That's absolutely true. And I've met a ton of great people around here who are professionals and do have professional connections and, you know, have helped me learn and grow. So, you know, every show is different. Every show you learn something. I guess some highlights for me. I got to play Tom in Glass Menagerie, which was amazing. That's such a great role. I got to play Hamlet in Shakespeare in the Park, which was an amazing thing. I'm not going to sit here and say that I was particularly good in either of those roles because that's not for me to say. But just the opportunity to do both of those roles was amazing you got to play sherlock i've i've gotten to play sherlock a couple of times technically i've played him three times and that's been amazing and fun and so i find a lot of the shows that stick with me of course they're great parts but it also has to do with the casts and the circumstances and audience reception and i i love comedy probably more than anything else well yeah when you can be in a comedy that gets you know Holding for a laugh is one of the best feelings you'll ever have. I was shocked when I had to hold for a laugh in Twelfth Night. Right. Like, it it threw me. Yeah. Because I hadn't intended the delivery to come out the way that it did, but it was a line about being confused for a boy. Right. And it was meant to be funny. It's a comedic line, and I knew that, but for whatever reason, because probably because I'm not funny, I, I never delivered it with the hit. Right. So I would say it, and people would get it. But it would be like, yeah, okay, she's really a boy. But they all know that, so it's not funny. Right. But one night, I don't even know why, I delivered it slightly differently and had to stop in the middle of my soliloquy. And I didn't know what to do with that. Yeah, it's funny. <laughs> like, no one has ever laughed at me saying this before. Yeah. And now I have to remember my next line. I think you just touched on something very interesting about theater and about comedy especially. You know, comedy is like so fragile sometimes. And uh, I was in a show, uh, in a regional show, so we only had three weekends. We had no previews or anything like that. So sometimes you're working on it as you go. And I had one line that I just knew was a good, comedic, funny line, but I couldn't figure it out until the last day of performance. I hit it. Uh, the delivery was just right. It got a really good laugh. And then I was like, oh, that's great, but I'm never going to get to say it again. And that kind of sucks. Yeah, totally. But, uh, because you're like, oh, can we uh, get another yeah, weekend? Yeah, seriously. Because I'd really like to try Just that because of that time. one line. Hey, I got that one line right, guys. Let's extend it for a couple more weeks so I can do it a couple more times. Yeah, totally. But there's nothing funnier than when stuff goes awry. Well, in hindsight, <laughs> nothing funnier. At the time, it is never funny. No. Well, I mean, it can be. It can be. Uh, I mean, we both have done enough shows to have plenty of stories of where things go wrong. And, you know, it's such a collaborative process. There's the people on stage. There's the people backstage. There's the people running crew that it's actually more of a miracle when everything goes right because there's so many people doing these things. Yeah. But anybody that's done theater 
shit happens and stuff goes wrong. I have on video, we were in a production of Measure for Measure together where I went silent for 30 seconds. <laughs> And someone... It probably wasn't 30 Oh, I, I watched it. <laughs> because it was okay. long enough for everyone on stage to figure out something was wrong, for someone to try and feed me my line, and for my reaction to be very Shakespeareanly looking at that person, looking to another person, and going, yes. <laughs> and still not delivering my line or continuing. Yes. So... What he saideth. Give it a good 10 seconds before my yes... <laughs> And then maybe a good 10 to 15 <laughs> seconds after of complete silence before someone else started back up again and then we were back on track. Yeah, it was about 20, 30 seconds. Oh, my God. That show had a lot of problems. But the other thing is, like, when shit goes wrong, most of the time the audience has no idea. The actors do, but the audience doesn't. In this case, everybody knew. In Two Gentlemen of Verona? When the dude that was playing the Duke in Two Gentlemen of Verona? Yes. It was very clear that he'd messed up because he stopped for a moment, looked out at the audience, and said, line? Yes. Then looked back at his co-actor and said, shit. Yes. And that same gentleman <laughs> uh, in a scene with me was uh, playing the Duke who was trying to catch my character having sex with his daughter. So he comes up with this whole plan where he's going to ask me for advice because he has a similar situation in his life. And then my character, who in that show is an idiot, yeah, tells him how he's basically been stooping the Duke's daughter and how he should go about stooping the woman that he wants to stoop. And this guy somehow managed to, if you were paying attention, and no one was because... It was a bunch of college students who were just going to be there for the first half anyway so they could get their program for credit that they were there. Uh, but if you were paying attention, he screwed up the line just enough to where it sounded like he wanted to have sex with his own daughter. Right. And then I had to ad-lib to get us out of this because he froze and then sweat started pouring down his forehead. So <laughs> in my genius in the moment, I said, and I quote, Well, my lord, it sounds like, no, what me thinks you would like to love a lady who is not your daughter, <laughs> who is very clearly not your kin. Yes, did not come forth from thine loins. And yes, in the moment, it was terrifying and horrifying because I saw his his pupils like dilate. Oh, yeah. You know, I saw like him in complete shock and sweat beads pouring down his forehead. And I was like, oh, no. Well, ad-libbing Shakespeare is... Oh, I didn't do it well. <laughs> no, and I mean... Seriously, there are probably like five people on the planet that could do that well, and we are not those people. No, no. So in Measure for Measure, again, <laughs> when we had the three little small scenes on stage, yes. and Neil, the director, who was also playing chorus, was center stage for the first part. Then it was stage left for me and Shauna, and then stage right for you and Jay, I think. Yes. And everything is dark, and then the one spotlight will come on for the small scene, go off, and then the other two, one at a time. So Shauna and I are standing in the dark, quietly, very still, and then Neil comes on and the spotlight hits him and he does his line, and he's playing an old steward, and he's talking like this, yeah. and he says that there will be something. You're making Neil sound like the lumpy guy from Manos, the Hands of Fate. That's kind of what he sounded like. <laughs> and the word something yeah. is not something no. that Shakespeare wrote for people no. to say. And we all knew that. And we, of course, knew what his line was supposed to be. And that wasn't it. No. But the fact that he said he just filled in all of the plot he was supposed to give with, <laughs> with the word, word something. something. Yeah. Shauna and I just lost our minds. So we're over here trying to be quiet and still and just laughing, like silently trying to keep it in. Our chests are just killing us. <laughs> and we have our hands held together for our little scene. And we're just we're just squeezing each other's hands so tight because it hurt. We were just like, he said something. Right. <laughs> and we couldn't stop. And so our whole scene, we're just like shivering yeah. with laughter. And we couldn't get over that because you can't just ad lib. He's like, I forgot it. I'll just say something. Right. Nobody fucking knows. <laughs> well, and that's the other thing, too. Like you and I, I think at one point even came up with. Uh, backstage, uh, a good way to get off stage when shit happens in Shakespeare. If I remember correctly, it was methinks I hear my mother calling and yes. then just leave. <laughs> yes, it was. We never had to use it, but now you were in Twelfth Night at Center Stage and had an experience happen where someone broke. Oh God! Quote unquote broke, but they did it completely in character, so it kind of justified the moment. It was simultaneously the worst and best mistake to have ever happened on stage that I was a part of. Mm -hmm. I wasn't actually on stage for this scene. I was backstage with most everybody else, but there were like six characters on stage, and the two characters in question were Toby Belch, 
played by a man named Jim. And that was the way he put his name in the program, which was weird. A man named Jim. Yes. Yes. A man named Jim. And the captain of the ship, played by Dan. So Jim and Dan are there, and they're doing a sword fight. And this is a legit sword fight. Like, they are actually trying to kill each other in character. And of course, they're stage swords, but they're still big chunks of metal with like a hilt and a blade. And at some point, we had the whole thing blocked out, and it was going to take like 40, 45 seconds or so. It was a pretty long bit of stage fight choreography. Right. But after that, people were supposed to come on stage and interrupt the fight. Right. Because no one dies, and later the captain comes back yes. <laughs> into the show. So they're doing this, and it was just the first pass, the first exchange. Clang, clang, clang. And from backstage, what we hear is clang, clang, clang. Pow! <laughs> and then just silence, because Dan's sword had broken. <laughs> So the whole blade just came right off the hilt and fell to the stage. Of course, this is a sword fight to the death. They're actually trying to kill each other. Right. So we're like, well, what the fuck do we do? <laughs> do we go on stage and interrupt this sword fight now? So that... Which, Jim by the way, would have been a fine thing to do at that point. It totally would have been. And we were... Like, the dude who was supposed to go interrupt it was, like, half a breath from stepping on right. the, to the stage when this happened. All of a sudden, Jim just puts the point of his sword down and starts laughing in Dan's face. Which was perfect. I don't know if I told you this story ever, but this is not my story. It's someone else's, and I've always loved the stories. I knew a guy who I think was directing a series of one acts or something years ago, and there was a scene where a character was pointing a gun on stage at another character. Now, that gun was loaded with blanks for later use. Okay. Against said character, but the guy got a little overzealous and pulled the trigger early when the character he was supposed to shoot still had like three pages of dialogue left. Okay. And so now you have a choice. You can either pretend like it didn't happen or pretend like somehow magically the bullet missed you, or you can be in the moment and grab your chest and die, which is exactly what he did. That's probably the better one. So now the char the other characters in the play have to compensate for the dialogue and the information that this character was going to give them within the next three pages mm -hmm. and figure out a way to manipulate the, li the line so that it still makes sense because now this guy is dead when he wasn't supposed to be. Right. That sounds horrifying. Oh, I can't even imagine. Like, that would be terrifying. But you tell that story about Jim breaking on stage, and Jim did improv. Like, I know that guy, and he, yeah. he was part of an improv group, which I think helps. I think everyone should at least take an improv class. Totally. If you're going to act. Like, not even with the intent to be funny, to be entertainment improv, but just improv. So you're thinking on your feet, you're really listening to other people, and you're prepared. Yeah. If something goes wrong. Because <laughs> something will go wrong. Because I'm known in my improv group as the guy that doesn't break. Like, I've never broken in a show, in a, in a stage play. I never crack up, you know, in scenes, hardly ever. But I just did a show like a year and a half ago where my character, it was called Psycho Beach Party. It's a great play. It's so funny and dirty and just, mm, it's beautiful. And I had a scene where I was supposed to introduce a talent show by myself with the entire cast on the floor watching me. So there's no one to save me if something goes wrong. And I had a bunch of friends at this particular performance, and I started spouting my lines so fast that I got I got myself tongue-tied. And for some reason, it became the funniest thing in the world to me. And now I'm laughing, I can't speak, and no one can do anything because I'm supposed to be doing this all alone. Right. And it became kind of a beautiful moment. I had lived a little bit just to try and get through it, but like the audience was dying. The cast was trying so hard not to lose their shit. And afterwards, it was all anyone wanted to talk about. Like it was like people were coming up to me going, oh my God. And I was like, it was not planned. It was not normal for me. And like I didn't freak out either. I think that's one of the things improv does. It totally does. Is it helps you not freak out when something goes wrong. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that and experience. Yes. But I do remember a time not that long ago when I did panic and I wasn't even on stage. We were doing a streetcar named Desire and I was Mitch. And I have the very emotional scene with Blanche where Mitch confronts her about her lies and then he leaves. The next scene that's supposed to happen, Blanche stays on stage, by the way. <laughs> and the next scene that's supposed to happen is Stanley enters with a bottle of beer and he rapes Blanche. And right before he does, she grabs the bottle of beer, smashes it against a dresser and threatens him with the broken bottle. Mm -hmm. So obviously we had breakaway beer bottles. Now, for one right. thing, these things are fucking fragile because it's really just sugar candy that's molded into the shape of a bottle. So, like, it cracks very easily. So they're shipped in a box full of bubble wrap. 
Like each individual bottle is is bubble wrapped. The whole time I'm on stage with Blanche, I can hear backstage <laughs> because Stanley had some sort of quick change or had to dirty himself up or something. And the woman that played Stella in our production was supposed to hand him the breakaway bottle of beer right before he goes on stage. Mm-hmm. So I go off stage to see the woman playing Stella frantically rummaging through this box. And she looks up at me and she goes, there are no breakaway bottles left. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And she goes, there are no breakaway bottles left. At this point, Stanley had grabbed a real bottle of beer and went on stage. Now, Blanche is on stage the whole time. Okay. So she didn't have the opportunity to come off stage and be told, we don't have any breakaway bottles. You're going to have to improvise something or just not break a bottle at all. So all that because they had orchestrated it because Stanley drinks so much beer, there's beer everywhere. And so he had a very specific place on the table. He goes to put the beer bottle down so that she knows that's the one I grab to smash and attack him with. So now we're backstage going, what the fuck do we do? Because he's now on stage with a real bottle. And the way the scene is orchestrated, he talks to her. He puts the bottle down on the table. He goes to the bathroom. So we are panicking at this point because we're like, she doesn't know that that because none of the bottles had labels on them. So we're like, she doesn't know that that's not the breakaway bottle. She's going to try and break that bottle. And if she does, she's going to either hurt herself or hurt him or it's not going to break. And then the whole scene's going to fall apart. So we realize that we find another box of breakaway bottles. But now we're going, how do we get it on stage? Because you can't just have Mitch (laughs) after this big climactic scene with Blanche just come on stage and go, what's up, guys? I'm going to set this bottle of beer down here on the table. This you could come in drinking it and be like, oh, I'm clearly interrupting something. I'm going to go and then yeah. put the bottle down. <laughs> <laughs> well, we came up with something that if you're really paying attention makes actually less sense. Okay. Because I looked at the girl playing Stella and I was like, wait, Stanley exits and he's got like, you know, about 10 seconds where he's off stage. We'll give him this bottle and tell him it's the real breakaway bottle to use. So we're like, great. So we run around. We wait for him to come off. He comes off. We're like, here's your real breakaway bottle. He goes back on stage. The scene progresses. However, if you're paying attention. He put the bottle down. Stanley just went into the bathroom (laughs) with nothing and came back in with a beer bottle. As if he's such an alcoholic. Uh, He just got him stashed in the tank of the toilet or something. Well, you know. Maybe he does. (laughs) I I could see that happening. And I also like wished I could have seen the scene on stage because now he's got to like clue her in that this is the bottle you should grab. So I'm sure he like put it down on the table, like kind of eyeing it like, huh? Huh? Check that out. Check that bottle Funny thing is the woman playing Blanche was so experienced. Afterwards, we were talking to her about it. And she's like, oh, I knew as soon as he came on stage, that wasn't the breakaway bottle. I was going to pull a (laughs) knife on him because there were butter knives on the table. Okay. And we were like, oh, well, then I guess we almost had a heart attack for no reason. But that was definitely one of those moments where you're just like, everything could go to hell right now. Right now. And the audience has no idea that this is happening. I never even heard anybody comment on it afterwards. Like, nobody was like, where did he get that beer bottle from? He went Uh, to the bathroom. Yeah, probably in the tank of the toilet. Yeah. Fucking Stanley. (laughs) He's just filled the bathtub with ice and beer. He's that. I mean, really, it is Stanley, so I wouldn't put it past him. But it was still just like we were were dying backstage. We didn't know what to do. But those are the things you talk about. Like, I'm not going to sit here and have, I love theater and I love plays and I will talk about plays that I love. I'll talk about plays that I don't love. But I'm not going to sit here and talk about moments that went great. Because A, that sounds really self-serving and egotistical. And B, you can't really recreate that. If you feel like you had a great moment on stage, you can't go, I was fantastic here (laughs) because people had to see it that's the great thing about theater it's a communal thing but when something goes wrong that's a fucking story you can tell forever oh yeah absolutely you'll you'll drink on that for months (laughs) oh yeah and you know then and there's always something that goes wrong there's always little things that go wrong that nobody notices and there's big things you know we've all had to cover for missed entrances or had a prop fall apart i did hear very recently about some friends of mine in a show in town who you talk about the wall falling down well guess what it did and they just lost it there was no point of even trying anymore no you just be like Hang on a sec. <laughs> yeah. Reset the set and just be like, okay, time in. Yeah. So it's like, you know, I've been in shows where the power went out, like not to the theater, but to all the, 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 the switch was accidentally thrown on the, on the work board. So all these great effects and mics and everything just went, and you just kept going. Yeah. I mean, you just have to. Oh, <laughs> like the time that I had laryngitis playing the ghost of Christmas past in a Christmas Oh, show. Yeah. And I was saved by the ghost of Christmas present. Yes. Yeah, and that stuff you just like, that's even worse. Because we work in a lot of theater where there aren't many, if any, understudies. So, like, if there's something wrong with you, you either don't do the show or you just suck it up. 
yeah, the show must go on. You just have to do it. And it wasn't that bad when I was doing all of the, like, just the regular dialogue and stuff, because we were miked, because it was children's theater, so it was a big theater. Yeah. So we were miked, and that's fine. That meant I didn't have to project, which would have killed me. Oh, yeah. But the end of my little section, I was up in one of the boxes, floating on a cloud. And I end my dialogue with this very high-pitched, eerie, creepy, fairy-like laughter. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and every other time, it was fine. Like, I managed to kind of perfect that, that kind of creepy baby laugh yes. feeling to the laughter. And it was good. And I liked it. And I was very confident with it. But I had laryngitis that night. And when I hit the high note on the laugh, my throat just seized. Ugh. So I was miked. And at some point, my laugh fades into the laughter, the booming laughter of an entering Ghost of Christmas Present. Right. But I was supposed to laugh for like five to ten seconds before that happened. And they were going to, you know, quiet my mic while they boosted his as he laughed his way onto the stage. Right. And I could just feel a coughing fit coming. Like I was pushing through this seizing throat to get this laugh out. And I was a split second away from just breaking down into this horrible, racking, <laughs> just chest ripping cough. Yeah. And it was coming. And I was like, I'm just going to have to stop laughing and rip my mic off or something. When all of a sudden Kevin's laugh just came in early, way early to do this Ghost of Christmas Present thing. I don't know if they heard it and he was saving me or if he was just jumping cue or what but immediately my mic cut off right as i started coughing my lungs out and it was like oh good oh thank you theater gods yeah because that was going to be horrible because there's an audience full of just children yeah and i go from this creepy high lilting ominous laugh to like dying in the box <laughs> and i didn't really want to do that so no that was, that, that, that was worked fun. out yeah and that's a whole other thing performing for children too like we should be wrapping this up but i do have one little story to tell yeah yeah a couple of years ago uh the children's theater around here does these things they call second stage shows which is just you know their headquarters is not where they perform their headquarters is a very small space for uh, classes and workshops and things like sure. that but they've started doing these hour-long very affordable very small scale plays and i did one it'd been years since i did children's theater and had a blast it was uh, a cute story about the big bad wolf deciding he doesn't want to be a bad guy anymore so he takes himself out of the three little pigs and starts inserting himself into other fairy tales because he wants to be the good guy so like he okay. sneaks into cinderella and plays the fairy godmother or he sneaks into goldilocks and plays goldilocks you know and there's a section at the beginning when he decides to take himself out of the three little pigs that the narrator granny is frustrated and trying to figure out what to do with him so she makes him go and sit down on a log on the stage right side and I'm just sitting there for a good three or four minutes doing nothing and granny's because granny's telling the kids you know what do we do now what blah 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 and we did it at the children's theater and then they toured it to some elementary schools around here which was so much fun but like with kids you know right away whether they like something or not yeah and you also know when at what point you lose them because they can like something for a good 10 minutes and then all of a sudden think it's the most boring thing in the world yeah but like this show tended to go over pretty well with them <laughs> i just remember like there was one night i'm sitting well there's one day i'm sitting on the log granny's doing her thing and i'm not even looking at her i'm just kind of looking around just you know bored and just doing whatever and at this point you don't know that he's a good guy yet you just know that he took himself out of the three little pigs and uh i just remember like the whole crowd of kids was silent watching granny listening to her and then i hear this one little kid who's looking right at me just out of the silence i hear i want to punch you in the nose <laughs> and that's like a whole other thing like you're not prepared for that oh this happened too. This is my favorite, and I'll, I'll end it here. There's so many other stories I could tell. Oh, God, yeah. We could go on for hours. We were doing a Sherlock Holmes play a couple of seasons ago at the Little Theater, and uh, they constructed this beautiful set, which was like a cube, and every wall of the cube had a different backdrop for the scene on it. So instead of having to bring in a flat or bring down something out of the, the wings or, or lower something out of the, the fly system, it was just this every time we needed a scene change, crew just came out, spun the cube one way, and you've got a whole new backdrop and a whole new scene, which is okay, great. Yeah. But it was kind of like a maze inside that cube trying to get through it to make your entrance. And we had just come back from intermission and I was waiting to enter, but there's a scene going on before me that was actually a pretty quiet, pretty intense scene. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this scene before mine, we hear from the audience, Run 
of my house. <laughs> we all just went, did you hear that? Yeah, what the fuck was that? And, you know, everybody thinks the theaters are haunted, so immediately some people were like, oh, it's the ghost. It's a ghost. And we figure out that what we heard was, get out of my house. So we were all just like, whoa, it was definitely the ghost. Then afterwards, we were talking to people about it, and somebody, one of our friends in the audience was like, no, that was not a ghost. That was the guy sitting in front of me who'd fallen asleep at intermission. Uh And in the middle of one of the quietest scenes in the whole show, woke himself up screaming. Awesome. In front of 500 people and like realized what he had done immediately and then just sort of sunk into his chair. Oh, poor guy. So, you know, lesson is you never know what's going to happen. The show can go perfectly and the audience can do something that completely throws you off. I saw a production of the Scottish play in the park that everyone seemed to be pretty enthralled by, except for the one woman that thought it was the funniest play she'd ever seen in her life. (laughs) That woman... Um, she maybe has problems. Yeah. Oh, every every time somebody died, and she was right near the stage too, and she was just like, <laughs> ah! <laughs> and you know, there might even be something to the the whole deal with the Scottish play because I've known people that said the name of it in a theater in their plays, and the play fell apart that night. And I'm not superstitious, but hmm, makes one think. Sometimes it does. But yeah, we could go on with this stuff for hours. We should probably wrap it up. Just know that we're both big fans. We both love it. And it's almost always more fun to talk about the shit that goes wrong. Oh, totally. But if anyone out there has any stories to share for themselves, Carissa, how would they get in touch with us? Well, they can email us at Lucky10,000, all spelled out, Lucky10,000 at Gmail, or hit me up on Twitter at Lucky underscore 10K. Excellent. And as always, if you leave us a five-star review on Stitcher or iTunes, we will read it on the show. If you are listening to this and are a theater person and have a theater horror story you want to share, please do. We love them. And we will definitely read those on the show. Of course. So I think that's everything. Thank you guys for listening. If you like us, please share us with your friends. The best way to help any podcast is word of mouth. And until next time, I hope you got lucky tonight. Good night, nerds. Thank you for being a part of the Lucky 10,000 with your hosts, Evan and Carissa. Email us at lucky10,000 at gmail.com. Find Lucky 10,000 on Twitter at Lucky underscore 10K. And visit our podcast network site at beardedpodsnetwork.com.